Shalom, everyone from Jerusalem. This is David Parsons. I'm one of the vice presidents here at the Christian Embassy, our senior spokesman, and we want to send out warm uh, season's greetings from uh, here in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, from our headquarters of the International Christian Embassy, Jerusalem, to everyone who's joining us for our weekly ICEJ webinar. We're so pleased to have you. We always cover biblical topics or current affairs, some of our projects, a variety of things that we take up on our weekly webinar. And with uh, the Christmas season, Hanukkah, the holiday season, New Year upon us, uh, we wanted to talk, start talking about uh, a little uh, background on Christmas, because there's a lot of people uh, who, uh, for various reasons, say we shouldn't be celebrating it and such. And uh, we're going to address this issue of why Christians celebrate Christmas and why on December 25th. And uh, to uh, take us into this is my colleague and fellow vice president, Barry Dennison. He's uh, our vice president for operations and a, a, a businessman and a pastor. He was a, a church planter and, uh, and pastor in uh, Brazil for many years. He's been a, a businessman. He's also spent several stints here in Jerusalem working with pro-Israel Christian ministries. Uh, we've been pleased to have him uh, on our leadership team here uh, for all these years together. Barry, always great to work with you. And I am looking forward. I know you shared a little of this with our staff and our staff devotion last week. People really appreciated it. We're going to share it now with uh, people. Why, why celebrate uh, Christmas and why on December 25th, please? Amen. Well, thank you for that, David. Um, yes, just for a little context of the last 26 years, um, Jerusalem has been my home for 16 of those years. And uh, working here with the, the leadership of the Christian Embassy, being a part of this amazing work is, is a very fulfilling um, time in my life. My wife and I are thrilled to be a part. But the title of this webinar is uh, Christmas, December 25th. Why? Do Christians celebrate it? But I'd like to expand the concept a little bit as we go into this and ask the question, why do so many Christians call it a pagan holiday? Why is there so much um, vitriolic accusations that it's pagan, it's idolatrous, it's unbiblical? Um, and, and is there any reality to that? But this, this celebration of Christ's birth, let's leave aside the term Christian, Christmas for a moment. Emmanuel, God coming to be with us. This is an important event. The birth of Jesus, whenever you believe it occurred, changed human history. Changed human history naturally and spiritually. And it changed our human history. You know, I sometimes ask myself, where would I be if Jesus had not come? And when I think about that for very long, it becomes very unpleasant. Because without his redemption, without his 
death and resurrection without the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, um, I think about what I would be and, and I don't like what I would see. But as we start this discovery, let's look at Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read through verses 8 through 12. Now There were in the same country shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings, good news, of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Messiah, Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Look at a couple of things there. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord stood before them. This event was important enough that God dispatched an angel to announce it. But not just an angel. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. You know, in these decades of ministry, I've oftentimes had people come to me and say, you know, in this meeting during worship, I saw an angel here or I saw an angel there. But I've not yet met a person who said an angel appeared and addressed me spoke to me. We see that in the book of Daniel. And here it's very interesting that Daniel was so overcome by the power and the glory of the Lord when the angel appeared that he fell down repeatedly. And repeatedly the angel stood him up because the purpose of God's presence and power in the life of that angel was not to make Daniel fall down. It was to get Daniel's attention so he could be spoken to so he could learn something. The angel then said, do not be afraid, for I'm bringing you good news. A Savior is born, the Messiah, the Lord. Drop down to verses 13 through 15. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Now think about that a minute. A multitude of heavenly hosts. Had I been writing it, I would have said one angel showed up and then a multitude of angels. But does not describe this multitude as angels. It's a heavenly host. Maybe they're cherubim, seraphim, and other celestial servants of the Lord that appeared. But however you understand it, this event, the birth of Messiah, caused God to send a heavenly choir with his glory to announce it. And then they go on and it says, saying, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Verse 15, so then when the angels had gone away back to heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has revealed to us. 
So whenever you think Jesus was born, I hope you celebrate it. I know that there's a stream of Christians that consider his birth date to be during Sukkot, during tabernacles. Well, I hope you celebrate it because heaven celebrated it with a heavenly host, meaning this event was significant. Now, what I want to do as we look forward is look at seven claims made to accuse or implicate December 25th as being a pagan or idolatrous day. The first claim is that this was to replace the Roman feast of Saturnina. Second claim, and it's very similar, is that this was date was picked by the church to replace the Roman holiday called Natalis Solis Invictae, the birthday of the unconquered sun. A third claim is why the date's wrong, doesn't necessarily complain it's pagan, but it's wrong, is writers writing that shepherds would not be in the fields with their flocks in, in December. Also, there's a lot of commentary that a Christmas tree and the wreath are pagan, that they came from the Yule tree, Yule of Nordic traditions. Fifth point that I wanted to address is, you know, and here it's interesting because I worked for a decade or more as a consultant with a Christian consulting company. And the owner and my boss, very strong believer, but he refused to have a Christmas tree in his home. He would celebrate Christmas, giving of gifts and such, but he based his not having a tree on Jeremiah and Isaiah. And we'll look at those scriptures and see if that's really what's being said. Also, there's commentary that the gift giving is, is not biblical, not Christian. Um, and I'll be honest, sometimes the excesses of the, Christ, of the commercialization of Christian, I think, violates the understanding. But where did the early church's tradition of giving gifts come from? And what was their rationale? And finally, there's talk about the, the, the feasting, the banqueting, um, and drinking that goes with it is a violation of biblical principles. But first, let's look at the claims of pagan roots, number one and two, that it was chosen by the church to replace the Feast of Saturinus, a Roman festival, or that of the sun god, the Sol Invictae. I find those claims hard to support because earlier than the year 200, Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, had been one to the Lord and discipled by the Apostle John. So he was just one generation removed. He wrote of March 25 as the day of the Annunciation, the, the angelic visitation to Mary and the concept conception of Jesus, which up until that time, the focus of the early church in remembering the coming of Jesus was on the conception and not on his birth. 
But shortly after him, Hippocrates wrote that December 25 was the birthday of Jesus, in part using the reasoning that if he'd been conceived on March 25th, nine months later, he would have been born. And in the year 221, Sextus Julius Africanus established a celebration of Jesus' birth on December 25th for the churches under his leadership. So how does, what does this have to do with the Roman festival of Saturnina? Saturnina was the celebration of the winter solstice. Now, the winter solstice is December 22. And the celebration of Saturnina was from the 17th and ended on the 23rd after the winter solstice. So it makes no sense to say that the 25th was chosen to replace Saturnina's festival because they're different dates. Now, the other accusation that it was to replace Natalis Solis Invicte, the birthday of the unconquered sun. Here you have to look at the history and Emperor Aurelian declared December 25th as the birthday of the unconquerable sun in the year 274. So Christian leaders had chosen and declared December 25th as the birthday of Jesus anywhere between 52 and 100 years before the declaration of the 25th being in honor of the sun god. Also, we have to look at Aurelian's name is derived from the Latin aurora, meaning sunrise. So he's named after the sunrise, and it might be more appropriate to look at evidence that he chose the date to combat what he considered, and the Roman Empire at that time considered, the rising Christian heresy and a security threat and violation of the Roman laws that did not allow a new religion to come into effect after Rome had been founded. And he chose to try and replace that with a holiday tied to his personal name. It's also important to understand that the church never considered or wrote about December 25th replacing the Sol Invictae until a commentary in the Syriac Bible in the 12th century. Before that, the church never, never saw them having to do anything. And English writing did not raise that concept that the date was chosen to re replace the day of the sun god until writings in the 18th and the 19th century. So from my perspective, the historical facts do not support what I view as a repeatedly in erroneous idea that Christmas is based on these two Roman idolatrous holidays. But now let's ask ourselves a question. How did the church fathers come to the date of March 25 for the conception of Jesus and December 25 for the birth of Jesus. And as we look at this, understand, I'm not trying to convince you that December 25th is the right date. I just want to argue and 
present why they chose it and show that it uh, continues showing that it has nothing to do with idolatrous use of that date. But let's look now at Luke chapter one, and we'll start reading at verse five. But it's also important to note if you read through verses one through four, this compilation of the gospel was a result of careful investigation to tell an accurate story. Now let's look at verse five. There was in the days of Herod, king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all of the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in their years. So it was that while he was serving as a priest before God, in the order or time of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot failed to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were outside praying at the hour of incense. Now, it's interesting to note that there was a multitude of people outside. So the impression is given that this is at least some high holiday or in the high holiday season. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zachariah saw him, he was troubled and fill fell upon him. Once again, I don't know what I would do if an angel of the Lord appeared with me. I'd probably be fearful. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, as a believer, I find this is very interesting because the Lord didn't give John a, a choice or free will about being filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Continuing, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I wonder how afraid Zacharias really was because he responds to the angel, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings or this good news. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my word, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Now, verse 21, the people waited 
for Zacharias. And marveled that he lingered so long inside the temple. So he spent more time than was necessary when a priest went in to burn the incense. But when he came out, he could not speak, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Now Luke reports that he served in the course of Abijas, verse 5, which scripture records as the eighth course or eighth group among the 24 groups of priests. You see this in Nehemiah 12, 17. Each of these shifts or groups of priests served one week in the temple twice a year. The course of Abias was served during the eighth and the 32nd week in this cycle. However, when did the cycle of courses begin? Now, there are traditions that the first priestly course of Jojareb was actually on duty in the temple when it was destroyed later on the ninth day of the Jewish month of Oz. And if you put the first course, probably beginning their second time around, in the temple on the ninth of Av, the eighth course, the, the course or group of Zacharias, would have been serving during the temple during the second week of the Jewish month of Tishrei, the very week of the Day of Atonement which is on the 10th of Tishrei. Modern days in our calendar, the Day of Atonement can fall anywhere between about September 22nd to October 8th, but it's always in the fall. So the early church reasoned that if Zechariah was told by the Lord that he and Elizabeth would become pregnant with John during the week of Yom Kippur, about September 25 would be the conception date of John. So now let's go back to Luke chapter 1 and let's read verses 23 and 24. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Now, in the sixth month, the sixth month what? Referring to Elizabeth's pregnancy, because she hid for five months. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. I'm trying to convince you that these dates are correct or accurate. My purpose here is showing you the rationale the early church fathers used to pick the dates. It's clear that the early church had traditions that placed Zechariah in the temple service, either during the week of Yom Kippur or in the high holidays. Six months after September 25th would be March 25th. And that's when the church chose to celebrate the Annunciation, when the angel announced to Mary that she would conceive 
and give birth to the Messiah. The church celebrated the Annunciation or the conception of Jesus in March 25th, long before it began to celebrate his birth on December 25th. But as a natural consequence, if you believe he was born, he was conceived on the March 25th, roughly nine months later, December 25th, it, it's human biology, makes sense. So the evidence shows that early Christians looked as December 25, totally independent of what the Roman pagan holidays were, and it was chosen before the day of the Sol Invictae was ever instituted. Now, the church held September 23 as the conception of John, March 25, the conception of Jesus, June 24, the nativity or birthday of John, and December 25 is the nativity or birthday of Jesus. Agree with these dates or not, the historical facts show that it was in no way related to Roman pagan holidays. So now let's look at another argument on why it could not have possibly been December 23rd, 25th. The claim number three, that the shepherds would not have been in the fields with their flocks in December, it's too cold. Lived in Jerusalem 16 of the past 27 years. Bethlehem's, it'd be a long walk, but it's a short distance, just a few miles, kilometers south. Winters here do have very cold, very rainy days. And every few years, you will get snow in late January or February. However, here the winter storms tend to come in waves of a few very cold days and then several nice warm days approaching 60 degrees Fahrenheit or 15 Celsius. Easily weather for shepherds to be out with their flocks. And in fact, it's not uncommon if you drive in the areas where the Bedouins are caring for their flocks to see them out with their flocks during these winter months in these warmer days. Let's look at claim number four. The Christmas trees and the wreaths come from the idolatrous Yule tree or Yule log of the Nordic traditions uh, worshiping the Norse gods. Let's open, well, I don't have this open on my Bible, so I'll just reference. If you look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, which is one of Isaiah's first prophecies about the coming of Messiah, he makes some very, he, he makes an analogy to a tree. And to go ahead and not misquote it, I'm going to open Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Here we go. And there shall come forth a rod from the stem or stump of Jesse, and a branch shall go out of its roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Earliest writings about using a tree to celebrate Jesus actually go back to this, that they were using the imagery that Jesus came as a stem out of this stump or this root of Jesse. It's also interesting to note that in the year 512, the Byzantine emperor 
Anastasios built a church at the monastery of St. Gabriel in northern Syria. And as a part of the decorations of the church, there were two large brass trees that stood on each side of the beautiful gate of the sanctuary. On the leaves, there was a place for lights to flicker, and each tree had 180 lights and 50 silver chains that ran from the top to the bottom. And on these chains hung, hung objects of gold, silver, copper, eggs, animals, birds, crosses, wreaths, grape clusters, etc. In the year 563, Paul the in the Hag Sophia in the Constantinople, now called Istanbul, and this massive church built in the 500s is unfortunately now an Islamic mosque. But he writes and describes the lights on the icon screen and that there were metal cone-shaped trees like a pine tree or a cypress. And instead of fruits, they had conically shaped lights and he records that the illuminated trees, like chandeliers hanging from the ceilings, were placed throughout the church. So the first use of the church, the Christmas tree, was, was coming looking at for the birth of Jesus, of the imagery of Isaiah, that he comes as a branch out of the root, the stem of Jesse. And yet the early writings also talk about these trees to remember the tree of life in paradise with Adam and Eve. And they use the star on the top to remember the star that led the wise men to Jesus. And then some of the church followers write about the tree, remembering Jesus as Messiah, is to symbolize the tree of life in Revelations chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Let's read that. He showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They do not need a lamp nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now, these uh, in the fifth century, the gospel was just beginning to reach into the Germanic tribes in the northern Europe. Um, late 300s, early 400s, some of the Germanic tribes, and then things progressed. In terms of the, this use of the trees that we've looked at in these Byzantine churches, there's no apparent reference or even cross-pollination with the, the Nordic Yule tree. Now let's look at claim number five, that both the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah prohibit decorating a tree. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses two through five. 
Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are futile. One cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of a workman with an axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fashion it with nails and hammers so that it will not topper. It's held upright like a palm tree, but it cannot speak. They must be carried. They cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they can do no evil, nor can they do any good. Then if you jump down to verse 8, but they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. So you, you, and he's not talking about do not cut a tree down, do not decorate a tree. He's saying don't decorate it to turn it into an idol. Now let's look at Isaiah chapter 44, verses 15 through 17. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it, bakes bread with it. Indeed, he makes an idol and worships it. He makes a carved image and falls down before it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into an idol, his carved image. He falls down before it and worship it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Now, again, I'm not trying to convince you to have a Christmas tree. But I'll tell you, I don't know of any Christians who have a Christmas tree who bow down before it and worship it and pray to the tree. So these verses are against making idols and praying to them not against the use of trees for decoration. And my in my house, I'll be honest, we have a very nice large Christmas tree, but it's just a decoration. We enjoy the ambiance. We enjoy the light sparkling over it. Again, I'm not trying to convince you to celebrate Christmas on the 25th. I'm not trying to convince you to have Christmas trees. But I do want to challenge you that speaking evil of these things beyond what they, they really are is not edifying to you nor to the church. Now, the next claims, verse claim six and claim seven, that the gift giving is, is a pagan practice and the feasting and drinking over Christmas is a pagan practice. I was actually in my research very interested to find out that the earliest reference to gifts giving during Christmas did not reference the gifts the wise men brought to Jesus, but they referenced the book of Esther. So let's look at the book of Esther, chapter 9, verses 20 and 22. Now, for context, the book of Esther cites the story of the attempts in Persia to eradicate all the Jewish people and how God used Queen Esther to counter that, that conspiracy against the Jews and, and bring about justice. This is at the end of that. 
And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. I probably pronounced that wrong. To establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and the 15th months of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy from morning to a holiday, and they should make these days of feasting and joy, sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And the earliest writings about presents on Jesus' birthday were that the birth of the Messiah was a greater transfer from sorrow to joy, a greater move from mourning to a holiday than this deliverance of the Jewish people was because it was for the whole world. And so, like Mordecai told the Jews, and has since become the Jewish holiday of Purim, it should be days of feasting and joy and giving presents to one another and gifts to the poor. Now, it wasn't long, and they also begin to reference the gifts given to Jesus. That God ensured were recorded for us in Scripture. Let's look at that quickly at Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. This is about the wise men. They had heard the king and departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And then they opened up their treasures, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, you know, this, this makes me raise all kinds of questions. Who were these kings? Why did God call them? What did they see? They weren't Jewish. They, you know, who were they? And why did they pick these gifts? But if you look at the, the, the Council of Scripture, gold was a gift for king. Frankincense was part of the incense burned in the temple, and so frankincense was for a priest. And myrrh was one of the principal anointing elements to anoint someone for burial. And so as a child, Jesus received gift of gold because he was the king, he's the Lord, the Savior, frankincense, he is our high priest, and myrrh, all of this would come about through his death. So again, I'm not telling you to give and receive gifts during Christmas, but I enjoy the tradition. I use it with my grandchildren now to talk about Jesus and what he did. Are there problems with the way Christian is celebrated? Yes. I have problems with Santa Claus. I do. Papai Noel in Portuguese. In fact, my children will tell you that when, when we were raising them, we never encouraged them to believe in Santa. If they asked about it, I would be honest and say he's not real. Because I didn't want them to equate me telling them Santa was real and then finding out he wasn't with me telling them Jesus is real. 
Maybe Santa Claus could be called idolatrous, but that's not why we celebrate and remember Jesus' birth on the 25th. Now, you know, Christian celebration of the birth of Jesus has had problems. England outlawed Christmas celebrations in the year 1645, both in England and in the American colonies. Why? Because of excessive drunkenness, violence, and lewdness. The colony of Boston outlawed Christmas celebration for a, a season from 1659 to 1681. Again, the reason they passed the law banning the celebration of Christmas was because of excessive drunkenness and violence and the lewdness of the celebrations. So are there still problems with the way Christmas is remembered? Yeah, the way it's celebrated, of course. I just choose not to participate in those parts of the Christmas season. And I'm not trying to convince you that you should celebrate Jesus or Emmanuel on December 25th but I would challenge you, encourage you to celebrate it at some point through the year because it was such good news that God sent a heavenly choir to celebrate it. Now, I have friends that disagree with all my reasoning and they have reasons to believe he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. Great. To me, it's not a, his birthday is not an article of faith. My salvation does not depend upon when I believe he was born, but it de does depend on him. <laughs> now, I would challenge us, not necessarily to confront all of those who teach that it's a pagan holiday, but just have our facts in line. And, and if they're open to dialogue, it's not the church did not choose it because of any idolatrous or pagan practice. So for you here, let's not repeat the lie that Christmas was a reformulation of sun worship from the Roman holiday of the birthday of the indefeatable sun. In closing, I want to share just some personal reasons. These aren't things I can prove biblically. But it does come from the biblical story on why the season of December fits for me, separate from all of the arguments I've looked at. We know that Jesus came to earth as the bread of life. We also know that scripture calls Jesus the light of the world. Well, Jesus, as the bread of life, came to earth in Bethlehem. In English, we call it Bethlehem. But in Hebrew, that means the house of bread. To me, it would be congruent that Jesus, the light of the world, would come to earth during the Jewish celebration of light, which is the Jewish Hanukkah, Hanukkah holiday, the celebration of the cleansing of the temple and the miracle of the candles in the temple burning for eight days. Is that conclusive for me? No, it's just a kind of congruence that I see in the way God do, does things. So if you celebrate Christmas on December 25th, you now have reasons to, to be confident 
it's not a pagan holiday. If you celebrate his birth some other time, amen, celebrate it. Jesus coming brought salvation to the world, and that we should rejoice with. So as we go into this Christmas season, me and my family, we will be celebrating the coming of Jesus. We'll be thinking about and teaching my grandchildren about his death and resurrection, um, and be at peace that it's not a pagan holiday. So let me pray for you before we pass this back to David. Father, first with, with joy in my heart, I say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you that you came. And you didn't just suffer Passion Week, but your understanding of the universe got bound into human flesh and human limitations on your conception. And so you suffered your entire life as us. So you understand and you show us the victory. Thank you for your death and resurrection, without which we would be with, without hope. And I just pray for all of those watching or who will watch this, that you, Jesus, bless them, that your Holy Spirit be poured out upon them, and that whenever they choose to celebrate you, Jesus, that they celebrate you in great joy because your coming is a blessed event. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. 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 Thank you, Barry, for uh, a very good balanced handling of, uh, you know, it's become a sensitive su subject among many evangelical Christians around the world. And I think you really did your homework here. And it's probably seems like something you've been looking at for a while. And uh, Barry, it would have been a little easier if in the Gospels they had just told us, like, what day he was born. <laughs> Yes, it would have been. Yeah, but I think, first of all, we have to realize that Hebraic culture in those times, um, they didn't so much celebrate birthdays. Uh, you, you lived your life, and when you died, they marked the date of your death and remembering you, and and you have uh, what's called a yazrait, even to this day among the Jewish people, that on the anniversary of your death, people remember the life and the testimony and the legacy uh, that you left. And in the Bible, whether it's Old or New Testament, I think there's only two birthdays that are celebrated, both by pagan kings and they both kind of turn out bad for the people of Israel in the New Testament. It winds up with John the Baptist losing his head. I believe it, uh, correct, it was selling a, a birthday, and the daughter got drunk, you know, he got drunk, and the daughter says, I want the head of John the Baptist. Um, and uh, so we have to realize the, the culture wasn't so much focused as we are on someone's birthday, and it's big. In, in so many cultures now, but it wasn't then, and they didn't give us the date. And it's you shouldn't get so dogmatic, but I think you good, did a good job explaining why the early church, and citing references to why the early church did this, 
I know uh, I'll give out our own personal testimony, and I think a lot of Christians who are questioning it, their their motive is to try and find and live an authentic first century Christian practice and experience. And they, they would say the early church didn't celebrate it. Well, it's because they didn't celebrate birthdays in general, okay? Um, but I, I know when I was young, I had uh, uh, three brothers. There were four boys in the house. We had a tree. We celebrated Christmas. But after we came into the Holy Spirit and things of God, my mother, she she found some uh, a book or whatever that talked about it. She did a little research and thought the tree was Yuletide tradition or whatever and uh, said, maybe this year we won't have a tree. And I know a lot of my classmates at school, all the person, poor uh, Parson boys, they don't have a tree at home. But i tell you what happened, Barry, is that between the four of us brothers, there was always this spirit of jealousy at Christmas. You got more than me. You got more than me. You got more than me. And that spirit left our house that year when we didn't have a tree. But I don't think it was so much getting rid of the tree as recapturing the importance of the holiday of celebrating the, the incarnation of the Lord. And we made a decision as a family that we would do things others for, for, for each other. We would bake cookies together. We would do this or that. Go. To, uh, we met, my mother made wreaths. We still had a manger scene. We still celebrated Christmas. We didn't have a tree. I have a tree now. I have no problem with it. Uh, some of the scriptures you cited from Jeremiah and Isaiah, um, I'll add another one from Isaiah chapter 40. This should be familiar to our folks about comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. But Isaiah um, 40 verse 18 uh, says, who are you going to liken God to? Uh, an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold or with silver chains. Then it says, he who is too impoverished for such an offering, he chooses a tree that will not rot. He, he get, finds a skillful craftsman, and they make an idol out of it. The, the reason people took, you know, like in Nordic lands, you have totem poles and whatever, is because they were too poor. They didn't have gold and silver, so they made idols out of trees. And this is, whether it's the Isaiah 44 and Jeremiah or here in 40, this is part of a, what you would, what Bible scholars call a polemic, where the Hebrew prophets are mocking or making fun of idols and false gods and making fun of people who make them and they can't move, they can't hear, they can't speak. And how can you compare them to the incredible God we have and people who, who would go and cut down a tree and make an idol out of it, they just did it because they didn't have gold or silver. That's what these prophets are saying. So it's a, a, interesting. But I think people are trying to find that authentic uh, first century New Testament expression of Christianity. You don't find much celebration of the birth of Jesus there, but it, it's because birthdays weren't such a big deal 
in those days, it was a, a, a man or woman's death and remembering their legacy that was much more uh, um, uh, at a higher premium. But uh, we really appreciate this teaching. I think it's uh, very helpful. And uh, I hope it diffuses, you know, any controversy among a lot of folks. It is a matter of of conscience, but uh, very, very helpful. Thank you. We had a question about uh, Christmas and Hanukkah, both being celebrations of light. What's the connection? Please. Well, Hanukkah, it's a beautiful time because if you, for example, here in Jerusalem, walk through the old city, you, you see hundreds, uh, maybe even thousands of these Hanukkiahs, these uh, candelabras, which have nine candles on them, different than the menorah. Some cultures call it a menorah for Hanukkah. Uh, here in Israel, they refer to it as a Hanukkiah because it's got different numbers. And for the eight days, they, they the, the few candles burnt out. And so day one, you've got two burning, day three, and, you know, all the way up to the end. And it's a celebration of the cleansing of the temple after the Maccabean revolt and throwing out the Greeks and the idols that had been put in the temple. And according to tradition, it was miraculous. There was oil, olive oil, for one day of burning the menorah in the temple. And they, it took time to send out and get more oil in. But that one days of oil burnt for the entire eight-day period, which was the prescribed time to spiritually cleanse the temple so it could be once again used for the Jewish form of worship rather than the Greek idolatrous worship which had been put in there. So that's why Hanukkah is a celebration of a light. It's the celebration and remembrance of, of the miracle God provided. Um, and so for me, it just is congruent. Jesus is the light of the world coming to, world, to the world during the celebration of light. It's kind of like the bread of life coming to the world during in the house of bread, Beit Lechem. Not conclusive, but I like it. And, you know, David, some of the th things you shared about how your family made Christmas to serve one another and bake things for one another and do things one not one another. Yay and amen. Anything you do to diffuse it away from the, as you said, selfishness or jealousy or who's got more presents or did I get the present I want or not and focus it back on the coming of the Savior. Uh, we did with our kids, and obviously my daughter Kelly liked it enough. She does it now with our grandsons. She barks every Christmas morning. There's a birthday cake for Jesus. We're celebrating his birthday um, because, you know, as, as three- and five-year-olds, well, with the birthday, you have a birthday cake. So it just – but whatever you do to refocus it on Jesus and his character in us, yay and amen. The Lord. Okay, and next Thursday, our ICEJ weekly webinar will be discussing uh, the political situation here, the incoming Israeli government under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. There's a lot being said and, and written a, about it, and we're going to 
uh, explore that with Josh Reinstein. He's the uh, director of the Knesset Christian Allies Caucus. He has to work with all the parties in the Knesset. And uh, so he knows uh, a lot of these folks well and tell us what's going on behind the scenes. And should we really have concerns about some of the members of the coalition that's coming together and uh, some of their views on, uh, say, even Christians uh, and, and such. And so come uh, next Thursday, 4 p.m. Israel time to talk about the Israeli government. And uh, we just wish you good holidays in the good uh, in the days ahead and a warm shalom from Jerusalem. Shalom, Merry Christmas.